Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to jump into the scriptures. Uh, we have been in our series on what Jesus says about important things. What Jesus says about important things. And uh, the series is going to continue the next couple of weeks, even though I'll be away. Uh, next week, my friend Brad uh, Townley will be preaching. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good preacher. Um, you may remember him. He's preached here before. He's the one uh, who drives a Corvette and wears a collar. So that's a good way to remember him. Uh, I did mention to him he wears a clerical collar. And uh, I said, you know, a lot of people thought you were a Catholic priest, just so you know. And he said, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll put away the collar. He said, I just don't like neckties. So he likes to wear the collar, but he won't probably wear it next week. So he'll be preaching next week on what Jesus says about priorities. And then Pastor Mike will be preaching the week after um, as well on the same series. So uh, Mike doesn't preach. He preaches a couple of sermons a year and they're usually excellent, just so you know. So I love it when, when Mike preaches. But today we're going to be looking at what Jesus says about unity. What he says about unity. Uh, this is, as we said, community group startup week. Sign up and startup week. Uh, so which fits this theme. It's also our rally day picnic which also fits this theme, a time of fellowship, we gather together. So unity is our topic. Uh, now understand, friends, unity is uh, uh, what God has created. We live out of the expression of that unity. We live to enjoy that unity. P- part of life is how we love each other, how we treat each other, the way we act in living out of this unity. Uh, is that necessary to, to treat each other that way, the way to, to live out of this unity? In one sense... No, it's not necessary. You can live without it. You can even be a Christian without living out of that unity practically at all times. I like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, friendship is unnecessary. Like philosophy, like art, like the universe itself, for God did not need to create. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things that give value to survival. I think that's the reality of the Christian life. Yes, you can, in a sense, not live out of this unity. But it's one of the things that makes being a Christian so exciting and so fulfilling is to learn to love and live out of this unity. You don't have to be in a community group, of course, to be a Christian. You don't have to attend the church picnic or any church picnics. You don't even have to necessarily attend here on Sunday morning or a church on Sunday morning. And there are some who can't. There are those who are in prison. There are those who are on the mission field and they haven't yet reached enough people to have a church. And there are exceptions to this. But friends, this is what makes survival valuable, as C.S. Lewis said, to live out of this unity. These are opportunities to enjoy the unity that God has created. They're expressions of our unity. It's like a family. If you're a family, if you're part of a family, you're part of that family. Whether you get together every once in a while and do things together... Like a, take a trip to Six Flags or go uh, hang out and get coffee together or go out to eat or whatever it may be. Whether you do that or not, you're still a family. But as a family, you would hope you would spend time together. Jesus spoke a lot, friends, about this unity, about Christian love, about our oneness in Christ. And I want us to look at John 17, verses 20 to 25, where he talks about this unity. Before we open there, I've got a little, little test I want to try here. So I'm going to ask you where you were born, where you were born. I just want you to yell it out, okay? Everybody just yell out, if, if you're, especially if you're a Christian, okay? If you're here and there are people who are not Christians, that's okay. But where were you born? Go ahead and yell it out on three. One, two, three. Melrose. Okay? Now, 
on the count of three, I want you to tell me who is your Lord and Savior. One, two, three. Jesus. See the difference? God has created us with a great amount of diversity, but He's united us by one Savior. And though we are diverse, we are one. We're called to be one in Jesus. Look with me at John 17, verses 20 to 25. There is a, it should be up on the screen, but if you'd like to take notes, it's also uh, in your bulletin. We have this, the text itself as well. We're kind of jumping into the deep end here as we go through this series. We're just kind of jumping into a, a section uh, towards the end of Jesus' three-year ministry as he's approaching the cross. So usually you don't get to what Jesus says here until you've really read through all of his miracles and his parables and his life. And then you get to his, what's called sometimes his high priestly prayer. His prayer for his disciples before he goes to the cross. He writes, or he says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, And love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. That though we are diverse as Christians, we are called to be one in Jesus. Four things for us to look at, four points for us to look at first, that we're called to be one as God is one, verses 20 and 21. That we're called to be one so that the world knows Jesus. That we're called to be one for eternity with the Lord. And that we're called to be one to fully experience love. So let's start with, we are called to be one as God is one. He says here, I pray uh, for not only for these, so not only the disciples, not only the apostles right there with him, but more than that, he says, for those who will believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's us. (laughs) Jesus actually prayed for you, specifically, here today. He knew that the disciples would spread the word, that the word would continue on for 2,000 years, that it would eventually reach the new world, that after hundreds of years in the new world, it would eventually reach you, and that you would believe, if you're a Christian, that you would come to believe in it. And he prays specifically here for you, for those who would hear and believe the word through the apostles. And what's his prayer? Verse 21, that they may be one. That they may be united, though they're diverse, in one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. Just like the unity of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, so I'm, I'm praying that your people would be united. And more than that, it says that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I'm going to save that last phrase to the next section there, because it, it talks about it again. But not only are we united with one another, but that unity comes with a unity with God Himself. 
as he is in us, so he prays that we'd be united like him. Think about that, friends. The Trinity is our example of unity. And think about it, the, the Trinity is the example, the perfect example, really, of unity and diversity, where they come together. Now, I understand, that's a great mystery in the Trinity. Uh, somebody asked you to explain the Trinity. That's, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a, I remember uh, one uh, professor I had, he said he was talking to a Muslim friend who said, you know, the, the, the Trinity doesn't make any sense. Uh, what's one plus one plus one? It's three, but you guys say it's one. And so uh, my professor said, that's true, but tell me, what is infinity plus infinity plus infinity? He said, infinity. He said, yes, exactly, right? <laughs> with God, we're dealing with something beyond us, something that is not like us. But that is the, here's what we know about the Trinity, all right, from the scriptures. Even if we don't understand all the, the details of how God works in His very person, this is what we understand, that there is one God. No question about that. The Bible is very clear. There is one God. But here's what we also understand, that there are three persons. That there is the Father, that there is the Son, and that there is the Holy Spirit. That's what we know. Now, how are you going to put those together in your mind? Maybe you can't kind of all fit it all in there. That's okay. It's a mystery. Leave it there. But there are three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there's only one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They are different persons, and yet there is only one God. They are united. I remember um, I was doing some evangelism during seminary with a friend, and uh, somebody was asking questions. We were at a, a university, and uh, some, some of the students were asking questions, explained the Trinity and all that. And as he was trying to explain it, he used the term functional subordination, uh, which tried to explain that. And I remember talking to him afterwards. I said, Blair, really? Functional subordination to clarify the Trinity? I mean, that just makes it more difficult. But the idea behind that is that the three persons of the Trinity have different functions in the way they relate to us as human beings. They are different. But the Father... The Son and the Holy Spirit exist in perfect unity. They are one. They are not the same. They are different. They have different functions in relation to us. But there is only one God for all eternity. And Jesus is saying, that is what I want for the church. That is my final prayer before I go to the cross. For not only the disciples, but those who will believe by their witness. That we would reflect God and his very nature is one who is diverse and yet one. One thing I love about this, no one person can reflect God. No one person can do it. It takes unity and diversity. <laughs> That's the only way you can actually truly reflect who God really is in his very being. You know, in some sense, the church is the real university. Right, the word university is just from two words stuck together. Unity and diversity put together. That's where you get the term university. Well, the real university is the local church. It's the real place in which God takes diverse people with all different gifts and personalities and different experiences and then makes them one entity, one body, one temple, one church. And friends, there's a spiritual unity here. It's, it's not something, it's not the unity of a baseball team, right? It's not the unity of the Rotary Club. Or of a gang. There is a, a spiritual unity among God's people. Though they're diverse. He doesn't make us monochrome. He doesn't make us identical. 
He doesn't make us clones of one another, but he does call us to be united as one. Think of it like this, just think of some illustrations of this, like a wildflower garden, right? It's beautiful because they're not all the same. (laughs) They're all different and it comes together as one garden. Or like a mosaic, each little piece put into the whole, all different shapes, different shades of colors, and you take a step back and then you see the whole as one. Or like a symphony, all different parts, everybody playing their own differently. You get the wind section and the brass section, and, the, and it all comes together as one symphony. So God has made the church diverse, yet one, even as he is one. That's his picture, that's his prayer for us, friends, that, that we as a church would be united as one like God himself. So where does that lead to? The world seeing that and knowing. Verses 22 to 23. The glory, he says here that we're called to be one so that the world knows Jesus. So that the world knows Jesus. He writes, that, uh, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Uh, so Jesus is saying that the Father has given him a certain glory in relationship to the Father, and he's given that to us. What is that glory? That they may be one as we are one. That's the glory he wants to share with us. That unity and diversity that he has with the Father, he wants us to experience as the church. That spiritual unity, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. So there's, again, there's not only the unity that we have with one another, there's the unity that we have with God himself. As we are in Christ, and Christ is in us, that they may be, and he steps it up a bit here, perfectly one. <laughs> Perfectly united. Why? And here's the so that. So important when you see a so that. A so that means there's a purpose for something. There's an end to something. There's a reason for something. Uh, So that. The the, the Pats practice so that they can play the game. And really they play the game so that they can win the game, right? And they win the game so that they can win the Super Bowl. There's an ultimate purpose for the reason why they go to practice every day. What is the so that? Why are we being united? This is how high he sees The importance of our witness to the world. He's saying, I pray that they would be united so that, verse 23, the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. The point of our unity, friends, is so that the world can see a witness of the presence of God. That the world would know that God has sent his son to us and loved us enough to even die for us in our place. The ultimate purpose of our unity, Jesus is saying, is our mission, the Great Commission, to see the world come to faith in Him. Friends, this is practically true. Think about it. This is practically true. Unity is probably our best witness. It's probably our best witness in this world. Imagine a non-Christian walks into a church, maybe for the first time, the first time in a lot of years, and they get there, and what do they see? Infighting, gossip, divisiveness, Bitterness. I, I know a, a friend, a pastor friend, that he said he was sitting in. A, he had a deacons meeting, and uh, he had to actually stop one deacon from physically hitting another one. Right? So when I, when I think of our church and any of the conflicts we have, like, we haven't got to the point where anyone has actually physically attacked anyone. I don't think, not recently, at least not in our deacons meetings, right? But if if somebody sees that, they say, "This, this is nothing here. This looks just like the world. I don't see any witness for Christ here," and they walk away. Or, the flip side of that, of course, a church, you walk into a church that's filled with love and care and concern for each other. What do they say? Wow. God must be at work here. 
Something must be going on here because I don't see anything like this in the world and I'm seeing it right here. Friends, for many years this was church for me growing up um, as a young, young kid. Uh, not at this church, just so you know, but uh, you, church for me was you come, you sit, you listen, try to stay away, and go home. That's it. That's all it was. Come, sit, sit in the pew, listen, go home. Come, sit in the pew, listen, go home. There's nothing more. There's got to be more to it than that, right? There's got to be more to it. And there is so much more to it, Jesus is saying. That our unity, friends, has a so that. It has a purpose. It has a goal to it. It's that the world would know Jesus. That our unity, friends, is not just an end in itself. We are called to be united here at First Baptist so that Haverhill would see Jesus. (laughs) That they would see God. That they would recognize there must be something divine at work here. Otherwise... That's our witness. Friends, there's nothing at all wrong with wanting unity, of course. Uh, We want good fellowship with one another. (laughs) Uh, We we want to be intimate with one another. Uh, We want to have deeper friendships. I mean, that's why we have community groups, right? That's the main purpose of them. We want people to have deeper unity with one another. But don't ever forget the so that. (laughs) Don't ever forget that it's there so that the world might know Jesus. That our unity should never be a clickiness. You know, where you, if you don't fit in right, then you're not welcome there. Or if you have a sense of unity, it's kind of like high school, you know. You, you, you don't fit in that group, then you don't feel welcome at that church. It should always have an open arms. In fact, one of the things we want to do is we always keep our groups open. All of our community groups. Uh, we don't have any closed groups, and I like it that way. You can always go and join a group at any point in time. So if you don't sign up for a group, and a month later you're saying, man, I should have signed up for one of those Tuesday night groups or whatever, just come. You can always come. The groups are never closed. In fact, that's true of virtually all of our ministries here at the church. We basically say all of our ministries are open door. Anyone can come at any point in time. In fact, we want to see people come. Yes, this is our fellowship picnic coming up at 1 o'clock. But if you have a friend and you want to bring him or her, bring him. (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, we encourage that always. We keep the door open. Our desire is for that non-Christians would see our unity and meet Jesus. Same is true here on Sunday mornings. Uh, one of the things we're trying to push for, and this gets difficult and uncomfortable for folks who have been here for a lot of years, you know, sometimes more years than I've been alive, I get that, but we want to be a church that, that thinks about the person who walks in for the first Sunday and what they see. They see a lot of insider talk and insider traditions, and they don't know what to do with that, and they think this is really confusing, or are we going to sort of be mindful of the fact that people come in for the first time, and what they see, they can understand, and what they see is a spirit of unity with one another. That's our goal, friends. We are called to be united, but that unity has a so that, that the world might know. Verse 24, this unity, friends, lasts forever. It is, we're called to be one, but this unity is for eternity with the Lord. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, meaning these who believe in Jesus by the message of the disciples, I desire that those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying that this unity would not just be for this short little life and then ends. But that this unity would last forever. Where is he going to be? What's he talking about? Where I am? He's talking about after his death. Of 
course, in the presence of the Lord, but then His ascension, when He returns, He's talking about with Him in glory. That's His prayer. That the Father, who has given Jesus glory, would allow His people to see and experience that glory forever and for eternity. That's His prayer before them. It says, He said, The glory that You've given Me before the foundation of the world, before creation itself, God has given, uh, has glorified His Son. And now He's saying, May this glory last forever, and may your people be carried in with me to experience and see that glory. Yes, Jesus was born in the first century, uh, but he was eternally existing before that. All the her- almost all the heresies, or a number of heresies in the church, all come from the fact that Jesus was not eternal. But clearly, as he says here, a glory that I had before the foundation of the world, before the world was even created, pre-existing any of this stuff, I've had this glory. And now I want you to take these people who belong to you and let them see that glory forever. That's his prayer. That's his hope for them, friends. In other words, friends, that our unity is just too good to last for one lifetime. It's too good. It's too good to last for 80, 90, what, 100 years max. He's saying, may this, this unity last in heaven, in the resurrection. May this unity last for 10,000 years. And I don't know what it is about 10,000 years. Songs like that, like 10,000 number, right? I don't know why. So, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, maybe, uh, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Or uh, the modern one there. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 years and then forevermore. I think 10,000, you're short selling it, right? 10,000 is nothing when it comes to eternity. Let's talk about 100,000. <laughs> Let's talk about a million years forever and ever and ever. Jesus is saying, this unity I have with these people and they have with one another will never end. Friends, think about it. You and I are united with all Christians. With all Christians. Throughout all the world. That's one of the things, I, as I mentioned, we're going to Nepal. I miss some of these guys, these men and women that we met there. I was there for about two and a half weeks, three weeks last time. And immediately, you just fall in love with each other. There's a unity there. I remember one pastor I met there, uh, his name was Gunja, he's a pastor, and uh, we got to know each other. I've only probably spent about a week with him there. But afterwards, we kept in contact with each other, email each other. He's asking me for our sermon ideas and praying for each other. Just found out uh, a couple months back that he was killed in a motorcycle accident. So one of the things I'm looking forward to doing is to go and visit his wife and just tell her, love her. And sorry what happened and we're here for you. And so there's a unity that comes with just knowing someone in Christ. Maybe you've seen this, friends. You, you see someone, you meet them for just a few moments, but you find out they're a fellow Christian brother or sister and already, already you feel like you've known them for years. That's the unity we have with God's people throughout the world. I remember this story, I've told it before, but I like it. A uh, guy was in a country, he didn't speak the language, but he was walking down the street and he was whistling Amazing Grace. And another person heard it, one of the native, the native people, they didn't speak the same language, recognized the tune, and he looked at him and he said, pointed to heaven and he pointed to his heart. And the other guy pointed to heaven and he pointed to his, his heart. 
And they gave each other a big hug <laughs> and then kept walking on. Because they know what the unity we have in Christ trumps all other differences. It's not only a unity that we have through all, for all Christians, throughout all the world, but throughout all ages. Think about that, friends. Throughout all ages, the theologians call it the church triumphant, that we are united with Christians, many Christians who have gone before us. In fact, the book of Hebrews says, because we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There's so many Christians who have gone before us. We're surrounded, in a sense, by their witness. So keep going in the race towards the end. Uh, friends, we will be united. When we're in glory, we will meet Christians, brothers and sisters, from a thousand years ago. <laughs> and still have that same unity with them. And some, if the Lord tarries, will look back at us and say, we're the people who have gone before them. And say, we have a unity even with them all of these days. As uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote the book Life Together, said, he who looks upon his brother should know that he will be eternally united with him in Jesus Christ. Not just united in this world, but for all eternity. Friends, when you're, looking, when you're thinking about unity on an eternal time frame, something that never ends, think about that, what that means for us. A few things. One, think about what that means when you have someone you love who knows the Lord who passes away. This is one thing I love about doing Christian funerals. Being able to say that you will one day see them again. It's the confidence we have in God's word. It's what Jesus has promised. You will see them again. Yes, this hurts and it should hurt because they're gone from us for however many years it takes. But you will be reunited. Reunited with Christ but reunited with this loved one forever. And never again to be parted from them. Think about what this just means when people move away or when people leave. And sometimes people have to move because their job takes them somewhere else or whatever it may be, or people leave. And sometimes they don't leave under good terms. There are church splits and there are conflicts that happen and somebody's angry and somebody said something to someone or didn't say something to someone and they get upset and they move on. And Yes, we miss them. Yes, it hurts. And yes, sometimes you can't work it out in this life. But understand, we're united in Christ. And in glory, all those conflicts will, conflicts will seem like the littlest shadow gone by. And friends, understand that this unity has been passed on to us here at First Baptist. And Lord willing, we'll pass it on to our kids. When people say, how old is this church? We don't say 1882. That's the age of this building. We say 1765. Because that's the age of this congregation. Right? It's not about the building, it's about a people who have been meeting consistently every Sunday, except for snowstorms and hurricanes or whatever else, consistently as God's people year after year after year since 1765. And really, friends, of course, we're united all the way back to the day that Jesus started the church himself. Friends, this unity is one that lasts forever. It's a unity that is to reflect God. It's a unity that is part of our witness as Christians, or as the old song goes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And they'll know our Christ we are Christians uh, by our love. And so also it's a unity that lasts forever. But then, verses 25 and 26, we're called to be one to fully experience love. To fully experience love. Look what he says, 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, so the world doesn't know God in a relational sense, they can see nature and realize that he is beautiful and has lots of grandeur and power. 
Uh, they can even recognize that he, is, he nurtures and cares for us the way he provides the crops and the rain and so forth. But they don't know God relationally, personally, like you and I know one another and like we through Christ know God. Even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. Jesus, of course, knew, Jesus, knew the Father perfectly. And these know that you have sent me. I made them known to your name. I, have made, I, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. We know the Father through Jesus. That's how we know the Father. God the Father is unseen. He exists eternally. But through Jesus, we can know him. As he says here, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. That this unity leads to the expression of that unity in love for one another. And I in them as Christ dwells within us. See, friends, the byproduct, if you will, of unity is love. That's what it's supposed to look like in practice. Love. Love doesn't create unity. Understand? It's actually the exact opposite. Unity creates love. I know that's not what TV tells you, right? In Hollywood, they want to tell you that love will automatically somehow create unity. That's actually the opposite. God creates unity. Love is the expression of that unity. Love is the byproduct of the unity that God has made. Families are families. Whether they love each other or not, they're supposed to love one another because they're family. It's a unity that they have. You don't get to pick and choose your family, and there's a reason for that, right? You're called to love your family regardless. In the same way, friends, your church, your church is, has a unity that God has made, and we're called to love one another as part as an expression of that unity. Can a church have unity without love? Sort of. Sort of. As I said in the beginning, we can live in a way that's not in line with the unity that God has made. And you see that. You see that, what I said. As I said, church splits and conflicts. And sometimes I feel like my job as a pastor is like a, that of a fireman. You know, I'm just going around putting up different conflicts all the time. <laughs> there's always somebody who gets mad at somebody for some reason or whatever it is. And yes, it happens all the time. We fail to live out of that unity. But that is our call. Because we're united, we're called to love one another. We can be inconsistent. But friends, even with all our inconsistencies, even with all of our problems as Christians, even in the fact that we do have lots of conflict and gossip and people not getting along with one another and divisiveness and not just talking about First Baptist, talking about the church worldwide, even with all that, I would argue, and I'd stand on this, that the most loving place you will ever be is in a local church. The most loving place you will find on earth because God has made us one. And even though we're inconsistent at times, this is where he calls us to love one another as he has loved us. So let me say this. Let's go ahead and enjoy. Let's enjoy this amazing love as those united to Christ. Let's enjoy God's love first and foremost. That he has given us an abundant, overflowing, amazing love. In fact, if you read the scriptures, friends, God is not bashful about his love for us. He's very clear and he's very expressive of his love for us. In fact, his, best, his most common description of his love for us is that of a husband for his wife. A husband who's just deeply in love with his bride. That's God's consistent expression of his relationship with us. God loves us and he is not at all bashful about that. Let's enjoy that. Let's receive the fact that we have a God who loves us. And then second, let's enjoy love for one another. Not always a mushy love but a real backbone steel love for one another. And I would just say, friends, that I love First Baptist Church of Haverhill. 
I love First Baptist. I feel loved here. And I'm not a big mushy-gushy love guy either, so I understand that. But I love this church. And I know I'm loved here at this church. And I pray that you would know that as well and that new people would come and be welcomed into that as well. That Christ's love is here. That's why we love one another. I pray, I preach, I live to this end. We would experience a holy, deeper, true love for one another. Though we're diverse, we're called to be one in Jesus. Jesus had a very high view of unity. What did Jesus say about unity? A lot. And he makes it central. He spoke clearly on it, that unity matters. Friends, we express that, we live out of that unity. We do it on Sunday mornings when we gather with one another in fellowship. We do it in our community groups, which I encourage you so strongly to sign up for, especially if you've never been in one before. Just take that step of faith and you'll learn so much. It's not only just to study, but learn so much in those relationships, enjoying that expression of unity. And I think, friends, this is our most powerful witness. In a divided day, as you see all over the news, racial tensions, generational divisions, political heat right now, let them see it. Let them see what real unity, even in the face of diversity, looks like. I want to end with a little quote, lengthy quote from a guy named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a young man, and uh, he didn't like experiencing this idea that you show up at a church, like I said earlier, you sit in a pew, you listen to a sermon, some, some music, and go home. And so this is what he did in attending in one church. He says, when I was very young and first joined the church in Cambridge, he was British, I sat in the pew at the communion with a gentleman, perhaps with two or three, but none of them spoke to me. The next time I went to the communion, it was the same. Nobody spoke to me. I was not anybody to be spoken to. So when I got outside the chapel, I said to one gentleman, Well, dear sir, how are you? He said, I'm pretty well, thank you, but you have the advantage of me. In other words, you know me. I don't know who you are. I don't think I have, sir. I do not know you any more than you know me. But I came to the communion table to profess that I was a brother of those who were there. And I meant it. Did you not mean it? He put both his hands on me, for he was much older than I was, and he said, What sweet simplicity. You have only acted according to truthfulness. I am glad. I am glad that you did not do it to our deacon. (laughs) I don't know, something about that deacon, I guess. The next thing he said was, Will you come in and have a cup of tea with me? I said, Thank you, sir. I could not do do that tonight because I'm expected home at that place where I live. Will you come in next Sunday? Yes. I continued to go in every Sunday as long as I could. And he remained and does remain a dear friend of mine to this day. Though he is very much older than I am, I established a friendship with him which never has been interrupted and never will be either in time or in eternity. Should it not be thus among all Christians? Our gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for John 17. Thank you, Jesus, for your prayer for us, for us here today, for those who would believe in the message through the, ultimately through the witness of your apostles and disciples. 
And thank you, Lord, for your prayer that we would be one. And that our unity, Lord, would reflect the unity of the Trinity, of the very nature of God. That although we're diverse in our experiences and personalities and gifting and styles, we're called to be one in Christ. And Lord, we do pray that our unity would be perhaps our most powerful witness in our city, in the surrounding towns. That people would see that. They would see that unity, Lord, that transcends all temporary differences of age and ethnicity and race and social class and personality and backgrounds. And they would say, God must truly be among them. It's by their love that all men would know that we are your disciples, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that this unity lasts forever. That it is an eternal unity, Lord. That this life, one lifetime, is not nearly enough. Not nearly enough to enjoy the unity that you have given us. You'll carry it into all eternity. And Lord, we pray, help us. Help us to live out of the expression of this unity. Yes, we fail again and again to love one another truly. But help us to grow in living out of this unity as we seek to love one another. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.